Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 203. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino, my king, our father, our king, Lord, we ask that you would um, open our spirits uh, so that we can understand your word, so that we can appreciate uh, what you're teaching us tonight, so that we can be receptive to the truths of the word and allow the um, content to seek down, sink down deep and to permeate um, our hearts and our minds so that we can be pleasing you. Um, help us to continue to be diligent, to press in, to um, to read, to, to study, to meditate, to memorize. Um, Lord, the only way we're going to be equipped for what's going to be uh, facing us in the end times is to have our trust anchored in you, and um, that is facilitated by uh, your word and by your spirit. And so thank you for giving us faith, trust that you're going to uh, see us through these difficult times that are basically right around the corner. But um, Lord, we need to uh, continue to do our part, and it's it's just not automatic. It's 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 hard work um, uh, uh, keeping the faith that we have that we know is uh, so near and dear and, and is uh, so um, valuable uh, for our everyday living. So continue to raise us up and to strengthen us as a people, as individuals, as families. Um, Give us opportunities to share our witness with others because we need to be about our Father's business, um, kingdom building, uh, honoring your name, glorifying you, um, pointing others to Yeshua, um, pointing out sin, um, uh, pointing towards uh, uh, um, building up the body and all of those things. Lord, that's that's what we're here to do. So help us to not be distracted by all of the uh, the cares of the world around us. Uh, bless me during the study. Bless the, the other students as well. Bless us together, Lord. But help me to recall the things that I've studied this week, and so that it's a meaningful study and, and something that the, the people can walk away with and be um, um, uh, enriched by and blessed by. And I'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and glory, Bishim Yeshua, Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me during these weekly studies. My name is Arben Lyman Hanavi. This is an hour-long live internet study broken up into two segments. Segment one, the first hour, is given over to a study called Eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. The second segment is a 30-minute um, apologetic section on um, a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarians. So I hope you can stick around for both parts uh, during the study. But this first video... Uh, is broken up into three parts, part one, two, and three, and they're each about 20 minutes long. That covers the entire um, hour of segment one. Let's jump right into it. As you can see on my screen, we're looking at um, some notes that I've culled together from various sources off the internet or books that I own and things like that to get this eschatology study going. We learned last week in our part one that eschatology is the study of end-time events, uh, particularly prophecy that pertains to... Um, Activities are going to take place in or around the final kind of squeeze of uh, events that are going to take place on planet Earth that are closely related with the second coming of Yeshua. Um, we're going to do a bit of a um, preview tonight of some of the some of the more controversial topics. We're going to be talking about um, some rapture views and maybe whet your appetite towards sticking with me throughout the study. I don't think this will be one of those year-long studies like I've done or three years like I did with the Shema study. Um, I'm hoping to make this study a little shorter, maybe three months at most. That, that, that's my aim. It could go longer um, as the Lord leads, but uh, my goal is to keep it kind of short and concise and yet complete. So 
um, before we can jump into any serious study on end-time events and biblical prophecy, it's necessary to define the different methods of interpreting this type of genre and literature in the Bible. And so many people approach this particular part of the Bible, these parts of the Bible, through different methods. And so I'm going to just rattle off some of the different types of um, uh, interpretations, and then I'm going to tell you which ones I'm going to be using during this study. Um, there's no right or wrong way per se to study the Bible. You you want to study it with the goal of um, glorifying God and and bringing His message uh, to you in a meaningful way. And you want to allow the Holy Spirit to move you in whichever way that happens to be. So I'm not going to be the one who's going to step in and say you're doing it wrong if you're studying the Bible and you're not studying it the way that I I think you should be studying. I'm not going to say that you're doing it the wrong way. However, that being said, because of the different styles of writing in the Bible such as um, you know, uh, prose, narrative, uh, poetry, um, apocalyptic literature, um, uh, you know, in, in, uh, imperatives, uh, commands, um, uh, what we might call um, protestants, apodosis, if-then literature. Um, there's all kinds of styles that the Bible is written in, and so it's always helpful to get my maybe a, um, a perception of what type of uh, literature you're dealing with so that when you do read it and you're seeking to understand it and you're asking God, how can this make sense to me? You have a better uh, chance of understanding it if you know um, the style that is written in and you can kind of perceive that, well, this is, should I take this literally? Should I just take it figurative, figuratively, allegorically, metaphorically, um, symbolically, et cetera, et cetera, those types of things. So that's what, kind of what we're going to be looking at. Let me just jump right into it. This is a study that I put together, this part of the, the study. It's, it isn't available anywhere online, per se. It's still a Word document. Eventually, it'll become a, 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 um, a, a web page on my website at tatesatora.com. But for now, just bear with me as I'm kind of cobbling all the notes together and deciding how they should look on my own website. But for now, if you do need... Uh, more notes, more than I can put into the um, comments section of the YouTube videos, just email me and I'd be more than happy to kind of maybe share the uh, Word document with you or something like that or a PDF version of the Word document. But for now, let's just look at this. This um, particular, this is topic, uh, this is um, a topic two of about 14 different topics that I pulled together uh, and, and mentioned to about last week. I'm, I'm not going to show you that list now because I keep, it's in it's in fluctuation of the uh, the kind of the schedule but this is topic two so part two topic two uh hermeneutics the study of how to interpret for some this isn't going to be as exciting uh, i'm going to read down through it kind of non-stop and then i'll go back and hit some highlights if i need to but i think it's necessary so just sit, sit back and bear with me those of you who are not really interested in hearing how to interpret scripture you just want me to jump right into to uh into the prophetic passages um, I think it goes a long way towards uh, listening into understanding why and how you should um, approach different uh, ver uh, different passages in the Bible a different way. So uh, let me read this and um, you can see if this is helpful. So let's look at three basic overarching methods of interpreting the Bible first. Okay, um, these are my own thoughts. Like I said, I've used various resources uh, that I've come across through the years. I don't even remember every uh, resource I have. Uh, so there's no really footnotings to this. It's just um, kind of um, a culmination of my uh, interaction with other authors and Bible teachers. Here's what I have to say. Hermeneutics has been defined as the science and art of biblical interpretation. There have been huge tomes written 
on hermeneutics, but we want to boil it down to what I say is the essence of interpreting the Bible. What method should we use? What are some principles that should guide our interpretation of the Bible? Historically, there have been three basic overarching methods, I say, of biblical interpretation espoused by scholars. So I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm not making this up on my own. I'm just pulling together information that um, I have picked up through the years as I've studied with people that I have come to trust. Plus, you can pick up, you can ask the question on the internet, you know, biblical hermeneutics and things like that. You can Google search it and come together with, come, come up with some general ideas of what is good and what's kind of to be avoided. I go on to say these are the these three are the spiritual method, the allegorical method, and the literal or what we might call face value method. So there's probably more, um, but I go on to say that there are also four methods that specifically impact biblical prophecy that we're going to talk about a little later on in this particular part of my commentary. Let's first talk about the spiritual way of interpreting Bible, the Bible passages as a whole, and we're going to then zero in on on how this pertains to uh, looking at end-time prophecy and things like that. When it comes to interpreting the Bible, we've got the spiritual method. And um, this is the practice of interpretation in which the interpreter finds a broader or figurative or typical meaning given, a typical, uh, typical meaning given to the passage, like typical, like type. Um, and it's, and it's, of course, it's still given by the Holy Spirit, the rule of Kodesh. So don't think automatically that, oh, nope, that's wrong. You don't want to spiritualize the passage. Um, there's not nothing, there's not nothing, there's nothing, um, not anything really wrong with seeking a spiritual approach. I mean, you want to let the text, um, uh, enrich your life and, um, enhance your, your understanding of, of God's word and, you know, to build you up as a believer and to um, convict you of sin and to spurn you on towards uh, doing more uh, good works for God. I mean, that's always good. So if we put those in a category of spiritual, that's fine. Uh, I go on to say this method of interpretation looks for multiple meanings in the text, and it goes beyond the literal meaning to what have been called the literal, allegorical, anthropological, moral, and anagogical senses of the passage. Um, so sometimes it goes a little further than what the text actually says. Like I said, there's a use for this method. Um, it's just, uh, needs to be done in caution. I go on to say, these are the, these typical, these types of um, meanings that we're talking about are the deeper meanings that the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit has quote unquote hidden beneath the literal text. And it's the job of the interpreter the, to draw them out. So you're going to be the one who's who's um, pulling these meanings out for you personally. You're, you're in deep prayer and you're asking God to give you a deeper meaning to a passage or to a topic that the Bible talks about. You turn to various passages and often the Holy Spirit will kind of prompt you or or give you a sense in your in your in your inner spirit um, as to what is um, relevant for, you know, the particular answer. I mean, the Bible it contains the answers that mankind is seeking, but it doesn't have everything written out in, in contemporary fashion, like black and white. You know, I'm praying to God saying, OK, Lord, should I? Should I buy that house or should I go looking at another? You know, um, let's ask the Bible. Let's ask God and see if he tells me if I should buy that house. I'm not going to find a verse and passage that tells me, Ariel, buy that house or Ariel, don't buy that house. Right. I think you guys understand what I'm where I'm going with that. So let's keep reading. 
Um, I go on to talk about the problem inherent, however, with this method of interpretation is that the interpreter himself or herself becomes the judge of the meaning of the text. So again, there's a use for this type of interpretation, but we have to be cautious. I go on to say, there's no objective standard by which to measure the accuracy of our interpretation. That's where the danger lies in this particular type of interpretation. Again, every interpretation has its, or every style that we're going to look at has its time and place, but we have to know the, we have to be able to weigh out the pros and cons of each type and know when to apply the right tool when, when the right, when that particular tool is needed. Let's continue. 10 people, as I say, for example, can interpret the text in 10 different ways as they are led by the Holy Spirit. And we would be unable to say that one is right and the other nine are incorrect, right? I mean, your relationship with God is between you and him alone. It's between the two of you, right? It's intimacy. And so who am I, a third party, to come along and say, well, no, that's not what it means when perhaps maybe you're not seeking the literal at the moment anyway. Maybe you already know what the little literal means and you're seeking a deeper spiritual meaning for your own personal walk or for your own personal decision-making process. And so I don't want to step in, in in those cases and say, well, you're you're interpreting it wrong or here's what the literal means and blah, 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 and get you sidetracked on something that you're not really needing to focus on at the moment. So again, uh, we just need to know when to use this method and when not to use it. I go on to say, who is to say what Hashem intended for us to understand, right? I mean, that's we just have to be honest with one another when we're talking about biblical interpretation. Let's move on to the um, second one, second of three, the allegorical. Again, let's read. The method of interpretation for allegorical is a, uh, uh, interpreting a text uh, is known as allegorical is the one that regards the literal sense as the vehicle for a secondary, more spiritual, and more profound sense that's hidden beneath the text. So that's what we mean by allegorical. It's closely related to the spiritual meaning, um, but it's probably a little. It's tr it seeks to be a little closer to some of the details that are um, preserved by the. Um, uh, the the um, the literal text itself. It doesn't seek to say, well, there's just no um, uh, use for which text I'm reading. Let's keep reading. Um, a common theme of allegorical interpretation that we're going to find is to assign definitions to common terms. So sometimes maybe even bringing in contemporary meanings of a term that the Bible didn't really have available at the moment. We call this kind of an anachronistic way of looking at terminology. But in the allegorical sense, it's simply serving the purpose of helping us to bring the text closer to where we are in our own day and age, um, realizing that certain words didn't exist in that day. But let's look at an example. Uh, I go on to say, for example, water in the allegorical represents the Holy Spirit. Tree might represent new life. Rainbow might represent promise. Uh, valley might represent sin, and so on and so on. Uh, we could also go into numbers. Like we might say seven represents perfection, four represents uh, the earth, uh, six represents man, um, three represents uh, unity or or something like that, or trinity. Um, you know, so uh, five represents, you guys ready? Come and guess it for me. Five represents, I can see all those hands going up. It represents grace, right? So what we do is we allegorically assign meanings to terms and words that we find in the text. 
And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with that particular method of interpretation. Again, you want to use a tool that works for you that's that's needed at the moment. If I need a hammer, I'm going to pick up a hammer to drive a nail. If I need a screwdriver, I'm going to pick up a screwdriver to drive the screw. You don't pick up a hammer to drive the screw. And you don't pick up the screwdriver to nail your nail, right? Use the right tool for the right job. Let's continue. For allegorical interpreters, um, every biblical story, no matter how seemingly mundane or boring, is meant to convey spiritual deeper truth. So now we're looking, we're get, beginning to look at some of the dangers of this approach, some of the cautions. I shouldn't say dangers, maybe it's too strong a word. Some of the caution that we should use when you when employing the allegorical approach. Um, the literal understanding, I say, is ignored and seen as merely a vehicle for the deeper spiritual meaning. So this is where it can be abused. Every method can be abused because if you're not using the right tool for the right job, again, this is just common sense, but it needs to, it bears repeating. If you're not going to use the right tool, then you're not going to get the job done correctly. You don't want to force um, the tool to work in a manner that it was not designed to work. Um, and again, you're gonna you're still reading the Bible. It's still God's word. The Holy Spirit is still faithful, even if you're kind of miss um, you're misapproaching the text uh, in a wrong way. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit is faithful, and He can show you things that you per, that perhaps weren't even looking for at the moment. Lord, I want to seek some spiritual meaning, and so you turn to a text and you read it, and the Holy Spirit just um, highlights the the the, the literal. Right, which you're going to read about here in a sec, the face value. He's just, he's just throwing that in your face, pun intended, face value, and you can't get around it. Well, sometimes the Holy Spirit wants you to see that first. So just work with him. All right. He is the author of the text. We need to yield to him. But again, looking at the dangers of the allegorical, um, I say that once again, the problem with this understanding of scripture or the danger is that each person can define terms as they see fit and see whatever deeper truths they want to see. And often uh, it's driven by their own personal pain or personal um, challenges in their life or personal agendas. Um, you know, uh, historically we've, we've seen that um, anti-Catholic teaching, uh, which culminated in the um, uh, Protestant Reformation, drove personal perceptions and understandings of scripture that we're looking at the church, uh, the Catholic Church, existing Catholic Church, as the big bad evil, and so, um, that, but that was driven, as it were, by their own personal desire to break free from that institution and and seek God on their own terms. And so, uh, we now have um, examples of people who want to throw Protestant uh, evangelical theology under the bus and highlight. Uh, maybe Hebraic roots teachings, and so they're reading through Scripture and they're saying, "See, this is clearly what the Bible means," and they're, but they're they're letting their own personal um, uh, determination and ideology uh, determine what the text says, rather than really approaching it objectively first. So I go on to say, um, in this particular example of allegory, the danger is that there's no objective, quote unquote, dictionary of allegories. Uh, that we can consult to understand scripture. The key word there is objective. You know, we can kind of ask one another, hey, what, is, what does the text mean to you? And if you find someone else in your circle of friends who has the same allegorical kind of um, approach to scripture and also brings to the table the same kind of um, personal um, struggles that you're going through, well, then the, the two of you are going to kind of affirm one another's um, understanding of scripture. And yet that's not necessarily the, big, the, the best thing. 
neither one of you is approaching it objectively. Both of you are bringing some own, your own personal or subjective interpretation to the text, and neither one of you is going to be really um, able to understand the text in the best way possible. I conclude this part by saying each person can have their own interpretation, and there's no way of saying who is right and who is wrong, right? I mean, that's the danger of this particular method of, of, of interpretation. All right, let's move on to the uh, third one, which is known as the literal or the face value. Um, this one, as I say in my definition here, the method of interpreting a text that interprets terms in their normal customary designation. Kind of straightforward, so keep listening. Each word in this version is given the basic meaning that it would have had in normal, ordinary usage, whether employed in writing, speaking, speaking, or thinking. So when we're reading through the text, right, it's the words that are supplied for us. And this really doesn't matter whether you're looking at the original text or if you're looking at a translation, this particular um, definition still applies. You, in this particular uh, method, you want to look at what does the text say and mean in its basic meaning, in its normal, ordinary usage to the everyday person on the street. How would they have um, interacted with this particular passage? We're going to see more details later, so just keep listening. Uh, this particular method, this literal, has also been called the historical grammatical method of interpretation. You've probably heard me mention those phrases in my own commentaries. In this method, the primary goal is to understand the original intent of the author when he wrote. That's why we say historical grammatical. The text was written during a time and by authors who are not alive today, and the time period was is far removed from us. You know, 2,000 plus years have been uh, have since been since the Bible was written. For some texts, a lot older. So you want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, what did they mean in their day? And when the contemporary um, listeners or readers of the text were present, what did they uh, what did they glean from the the text or the letter or the the the, the parchment or or the scroll or whatever it is they had access to? Uh, let's continue. The underlying assumption of this particular face value method is that Hashem, that is God, intended to communicate his word to man so that we could understand it and apply it. In other words, there are genres or styles of writing in the Bible that are poetic or what we might call mystical or allegorical or um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Ap apocalyptic. And so in those cases, there, there's, there is an, an, kind of a, a hidden meaning beneath the text that we have to dig for, that we have to use research to find, that we have to pray and, and press in, that we have to apply ourselves diligently. Um, but even in those cases, God wants us to understand his word. But the point that makes it different from this particular face value method is that the, um, the, where, when we highlight the fact that God intended to communicate his word to mankind, there's the broader audience invo involved. There's the, the generalized. In other words, when we're talking about revelation, we say it this way. We could say that there's general revelation and there's special revelation or um, um, unique revelation. And so God communicates truths to individuals and to groups on a specialized 
way, in a, in a specialized way in a, and on a specialized manner. Uh, those who are in uh, covenant relations with them receive this special revelation from God. But then those who are not in relationship with them or covenant um, uh, community with them, they might receive more generic or general revelation from God. And so those are cases where we need to understand that this particular version of um, of a Bible interpretation uh, has the broader application. Um, God did not try and hide, I say, truths in the scriptures that is, at least until some specific, quote-unquote, mysteries were ready to be unveiled at God's timing and then understood by mankind. So that's my understanding, is that God didn't purposely say, okay, I'm going to write something and it's going to be a complete mystery to everyone. No one's going to be able to understand it. Rather, he has a purpose for giving what he gives at his in his time to be revealed later on, but that still doesn't discount the fact that we're going to see this applied, for instance, in my uh, segment two, when we're talking about the Trinity um, details of Genesis one twenty six. God has truths that are in the text that only until after God reveals the, um, the, the fullness of that mystery to us, then we can turn around and go back and look at those previous texts and say, ah, now I see it, now that my eyes are completely open to all the details, now that God has revealed himself in a more clear manner, I can then go back, and I must then go back and see the greater truth that was actually contained in seminal form and begin to understand the Bible in a fresh way. So um, this particular method of interpretation has uh, also its, its, its pros and cons, but um, I go on to say that essentially, God's intent is not to make it as difficult as possible to understand what you're reading, right? So just, just get that in, in your mind first. Don't, don't think that God's trying to hide it from you so that you can't understand it. Um, he wants you to understand it, but we've got to play by his rules because it's his word, right? We've got to use his um, methods and allow him to, to have his say and have him say it the way he wants to say it. I know sometimes we want to say to the Bible, oh, I wish we would have just said it a different way. Why couldn't God have just told us very, very early on that he's Trinity, that he's triunity, or that his son is his very God himself, or or that the fact that, that his son's name is Jesus, right? Why couldn't he have just told the Old Testament Jews um, way back in the five books of Deuteronomy somewhere, give us his name, his name is Jesus, he's going to die on a cross, he's going to save you from your own personal sin, you need to accept and trust him if you want to be in a right relationship with God the Father. That would have been so much easier from my perspective witnessing to unsaved Jews if I had a verse that was written in that particular fashion, you know, John 3, 16, like, you know, for God told of the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What if that verse was found in the five books of Moses, right? I mean, how much easier it would have been. But guess what? God chose to save that revelation of the incarnation until a later part of his word. So we need to deal with what we've got and give God the praise and glory for being wiser than us to um, um, pen the words the way that he decided to see them written down. So uh, his wisdom is higher than ours, and we give him glory and praise, even though it's frustrating to us. Okay. So in closing for this section, I say um, rather, again, I'm contrasting the idea. Uh, he doesn't want to make it as difficult as possible. Rather, he wants us to read and understand and subsequently apply his word. I mean, if you can't read with, the, with, with an understanding, how can you apply it? Right? It's the Ezra principle. Study in order to do, 
in order to teach. You first got to study in order to do. And so if you don't understand what you're reading and studying, how can you apply it? How can you do it? Um, I go on to mention that Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians when he writes, and let's pull a quote from Paul, quote, for we wrestle not, we, I'm sorry, for we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end. And that's 2 Corinthians 1, 13. All right, having said that, let's turn now to a discussion on four methods that specifically impact biblical prophecy. So we're talking about ways in which to approach the text. Are there some guidelines that the text kind of implies or that we can glean from dialoguing with others who have gone through this particular um, exercise before of studying uh, prophecies, both Old and New Testament prophecies? But when we're talking about biblical prophecy, we remember, we talked about this last week, there are prophecies that were given to us in the Tanakh that are largely forward-facing towards the, the first coming of Messiah. But coupled with that, um, those passages of, of first coming of Messiah prophecy, we have also prophecies that talk about second coming. And yet, it's very difficult sometimes to ascertain which um, arrival, which parousia we're talking about. Are we talking about the first coming or the second coming? Do these prophecies relate to events that are right around the corner from the prophet's perspective? We would call those nearer time prophecy. Or are the prophecies far away from him? Far time. So we have sometimes both, near and far. We call this near-far prophecy. So when we're looking at end-time prophecy and biblical prophecy, it's helpful to look at these particular four methods um, to help us understand the text. Let's read this. Closely related to the above three historical methods of interpretation, I mentioned that we must also take careful notice of the specific ways in which interpretive methods have specifically impacted biblical prophecy down through church history. So we're talking specifically maybe methods that are utilized by Christians, um, especially when we're seeking to understand the first and second comings of Messiah and how this impacts our um, appreciation of end-time prophecy uh, book of Revelation, Book of Daniel, uh, Book of Second, Books of Second, First and Second Thessalonians, etc. So we're going to be looking at these particular four. Um, the methods uh, in view are number one, the historicist interpretation; number two, the futurist interpretation; number three, the preterist interpretation; and number four, the idealist interpretation. These are in no particular order. I just listed them as I um, interacted with them. So let's talk about these. All right, historicist, futurist preterist and idealist all right let's turn to our good friend wikipedia for these particular uh, uh definitions um wikipedia defines these views of biblical prophecy thusly all right this is a lengthy quote from uh wikipedia let's start with the first one i mentioned historic historicist uh or historical interpretation the historicist or historicism it goes by a bunch, bunch of different words but you can see the same root word there history um, this is a method of interpretation of biblical prophecies which associates symbols with historical persons, nations, and events. The main primary texts of interest to um, Christian historicists include the apocalyptic literature, uh, such as the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Those are kind of the two big ones that are always in view for people who are historicists. Again, just like I mentioned in the three kind of general overarching methods 
above, these four that we're going to be looking at, there's no right or wrong way per se to approach end time prophecy, but you're going to find that some are, are better equipped to give you maybe um, a better understanding of the text, get up, uh, um, um, depending on what details you're looking for and depending on the application that you're seeking to um, give or apply uh, in any given situation. Again, just use the right tool for the right job. Um, Wikipedia continues, this particular method of interpretation sees the prophecies of Daniel as being fulfilled throughout history, extending from the past through the present to the future. Again, um, as we're going to find out as we interact with these four, um, there are some that that appear to be maybe more advantageous and maybe better equipped to help you understand uh, particular parts of the Bible um, than others. So you just kind of have to um, uh, feel your way through it and lean on uh, maybe the uh, the the um, the uh, maybe the counsel of people who've gone through this exercise. If you're a newbie to this, is the point I'm trying to make. Um, Wikipedia continues. It is sometimes this method is sometimes called the continuous historical view. Commentators have also applied historicist methods to ancient Jewish history, to the Roman Empire, to Islam, to the papacy, to the modern era, and the modern era, and to the end time. So again, uh, you're using kind of a broad brush when you're looking at historical method here, um, historicist method. You're reading the Bible and you're saying, okay, how has this played out in history? How is this applied to history? Of course, some allegory is going to get thrown in there. Some kind of spiritualization is going to get pulled into that. But you're also using history, which is past events, to try to better understand perhaps what the Bible was meaning when it was penned several thousand years ago. What were the authors looking forward through the lens of time at history? Was the Holy Spirit trying to get us to perhaps maybe pay attention to historical events? Again, pros and cons in each uh, method here. I go on to say, or Wikipedia goes on to say, the historicist, the his, that's, a, that's a tongue twister. The historicist method starts with Daniel 2 and works progressively through consecutive prophecies of the book chapters 7, 8, and 11, resulting in a view of Daniel's prophecies very different from preterism and futurism that we're going to look at in a moment. Almost all Protestant reformers from the Reformation into the 19th century held historicist views. Kind of interesting. I didn't know that at first before I researched this, but um, it's always helpful to know what have church fathers and church believers of bygone eras, um, which views were maybe most influential to them and which ones kind of impacted their understanding and interpretation of scripture. Let's keep going with this particular view. The interpreters uh, using the historicist approach for the book of Revelation, per se, had their origins in the Jewish apocalyptic writings, such as those in the book of Daniel, which predicted the future time between their writings and the end of the world. It continues, throughout most of history since the predictions of the book of Daniel, historicism has been widely used. I have a, a personal friend of mine who I know is um, a very a big fan of using the historicist method. Um, this approach, the historicist, can be found in the works of Josephus, uh, who happens to interpreted the fourth kingdom of Daniel II as the Roman Empire with a future power as the stone, quote-unquote, not cut by human hands that would overthrow the Romans. 
Um, it is also found in the early church in the works of Irenaeus and Tertullian, who uh, both interpreted the fourth kingdom of Daniel as the Roman Empire and believed that in the future it was going to be broken up into uh, smaller kingdoms. So we're talking about the historicist method as pertains to, say, Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. They saw those passages uh, talking about the Roman kingdom and um, uh, a Roman empire that was future, that was going to be broken up into smaller kingdoms as the iron mixed with clay. And in the writings of Clement of Alexandria and Jerome, as well as other uh, well-known church historians, and scholars of the early church. So this method has been around for quite a while, the historicist method. And again, it has its usages and it has its benefits um, that we're going to find out when we're um, utilizing our own personal uh, uh, methods and and seeing which ones I prefer when it comes to um, uh, interpreting end-time prophecy. Continuing, but this particular method has been associated particularly with Protestantism and the Reformation. Uh, it was the standard interpretation of the Lollard movement, which was regarded as the precursor to the Protestant Reformation, and uh, it was known as the Protestant interpolation. I'm sorry, interpretation until modern times. And the footnote number one there points to um, Wikipedia's article on the um, uh, historicist interpretation. Let's keep reading through this interpretation and these explanations. This is um, uh, Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End Time Events. My name is Arlen Lyman Hanavi, and we're working our way through um, topic number two, where we're talking about hermeneutics and the, the science of how to interpret the Bible, different methods, different um, ways. Uh, some have their strengths, some have their weaknesses. All of them are going to possibly be utilized at any given time by any particular Bible student. So you just want to be aware of the different ways. You might not know the names. You might just say, well, when I read the Bible, this is what it means to me and blah, blah, blah. And you start spouting off uh, the way the Bible impacts you. You might not even be aware that everybody's interpretation, it kind of falls into a particular category. I'm just giving you the category names for you. Moving in, uh, moving along with um, this is Wikipedia's uh, definitions for us. Let's look at the futurist interpretation, or it's also known as the futurist or futurism. This is a Christian eschatological view that interprets portions of the book of Revelation, the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Daniel as future events in a literal physical, apocalyptic, and global context. At first, it almost sounds like it's historicist, but um, because it's rooted in events, events in history. But the big difference is it's looking at the events that are written down in the Bible, and it's it has a future-facing um, perspective. It feels that the Bible is predicting something that's going to happen in the future. Now, it could be a near-future event, and it could be a far future event. It could be both. Could be multiple near or multiple far. Um, in other words, uh, the sky's the limit almost. But but the commonality, the common factor is that everything's future. Um, Wikipedia continues. Up until the 19th century, the futurist view was generally shunned by non-Catholics, uh, being seen as a self-defense of the papacy against the claims of the historicist reformers. So when we look at the Bible through the historicist perspective, the one we just looked at a moment ago, 
it was not uncommon for the reformers to read through certain certain parts of Daniel and Revelation and say, aha, the big bad beast in these books is the papacy. It's papal Rome and it's the popes. And it's that particular um, Roman Catholic system that's that's described by the authors of the Bible as the beast and and the one, the seven-headed dragon and things like that. And so that's understandably why um, non-Catholics were seeing Catholics in that particular role. But it was shunned, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the futurist view was shunned by these particular groups because it didn't give them any fuel for their own personal um uh, kind of beef against the Catholic Church. Again, we know this kind of culminated in the Reformation where the church broke into two uh, kind of predominant um, denominations, as it were, Catholic on one side and, and non-Catholic or um, Protestant on the other side. So again, uh, it was just helpful to see that, hey, it, isn't it too obvious to them that the big bad beast in those apocalyptic uh, prophecies was talking about the uh, the Pope and um, the Catholic Church and things like that? Uh, Wikipedia goes on to say the futurist view has grown in popularity in the 19th and 20th centuries and is currently followed by millions of Christians, probably many of them Protestant evangelical. However, while this interpretation is popular among U.S. evangelicals, as I just said, it is generally, as we can assume, rejected by Roman Catholics, Orthodox Christians, Lutherans, and Reformed Christians. And again, I want you to see why it's rejected by those groups. It's because the Roman Catholic churches, the Orthodox Christian, the Lutheran, the Reformed Christians, those denominations tend to be more... Um, structured and liturgical, uh, more well-funded um, in many cases, m more kind of um, organized along their um, uh, um, uh, laity. Uh, they have a lot of um, uh, what we might call um, offices set in place. Where we've got authoritative um, uh, uh, persons and um, uh offices and and uh, districts and 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 um the, the, they have this sense of you've got to do things our way because this is the structured way that the bible kind of commands us to do it um uh, in a sense organization versus compared to maybe uh protestant evangelicalism there's a little bit more um freedom relaxed um kind of more liberal uh, let's kind of let the Holy Spirit teach you how to do it. Uh, we're not really tied to any one man telling us that we have to do it this way, like a, a central papal figure or something like that. Um, we're, we're, our, we have a little bit more freedom, autonomy. And so when we're using the biblical um, uh, passages that talk about end time events or prophecy or something like that, and we, we read about uh, details about, say, um, one world organizations or centralized governments, centralized religion or city-state um, entities like like um, Vatican City or Monaco or um, uh, uh, what's it uh, um, over in Asia? I'm drawing a blank now. Um, Singapore. Uh, what are the you know? There's three city-state um, locations in the world today. Um, those three that I just mentioned: Vatican City, Monaco, and um, uh, Singapore. Well, when we look at that prophecy and end time prophecy in, in particular, it's easy for us to kind of plug in <clears throat> and overlay those 
um, big, bad, authoritative, Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran um, entities into the text because we were looking at large scale movements of 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 people and and um, or I'm sorry, of policies and 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 um, uh, you know restrictions and and things like that. You know, the Antichrist is gonna. Uh, make the entire world take the mark of the beast. Well, this is this doesn't seem pr- possible to us in a Protestant Reformation model. But if we perhaps say plug in the Catholic model, where there's a lot more um, structure and uh, uh, kind of a com- compulsion to do things uh, according to from the top down, well, then we we Protestant evangelicals begin to say, aha, this seems to make a little bit more sense. So that's kind of why we have uh, these particular, um, say, differences, stark contrasts between the historicist perspective that's held by a lot of um, Catholics versus the um, futurist perspective that's held by maybe more Protestant uh, evangelicals and things like that. Let's look at the third model um, real quick. Um, the third of four models, the preterist interpretation, or it's known as preterism. This is a Christian eschatological view that interprets some partial preterism or all future preterism. So it's going to be two versions that we're looking at here in a moment. So partial and full. So it interprets some or all um, prophecies of the Bible as events which have already happened. Again, we're going to see these in the bullet points below. So when we talk about already happened, we're looking at events. It's a little bit like the historicist perspective. We're looking at history, but the big difference for the preterist is we're looking at past history versus looking at uh, contemporary or future history or something like that. So that might be kind of the, the the thing that kind of separates all of these views from one another is where all of us are looking at kind of historical events, just where, where are you looking? Are you looking at history in the past, history in the present, or history in the future, right? That's kind of if you're if you haven't gleaned that, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the the basis the basics of what's going on with these uh, perspectives. Um, Wikipedia continues. Speaking of preterism as a whole, this school of thought interprets the book of Daniel as referring to events that happened from the seventh century BC until the first century AD, while seeing the prophecies of the book of Revelation as events that happened in the first century AD. So that's kind of a big um, detail or definition that drives the preterist's perspective, particularly as we're going to see, and this next paragraph highlights it, preterism holds that ancient Israel finds its continuation or fulfillment in the Christian church at the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So AD 70 is a big key event for, especially for full preterists, maybe not so much for partial preterists, but for full preterism, AD 70 was kind of like the big defining um, end of all events, Um, you know, particularly uh, the future destructions of Jerusalem that are outlined in um, Matthew chapter 24 and certain parts of of, uh, of, um, Revelation and things like that. The the full preterist came along and said, well, this was Jesus and uh, uh, foretelling that Uh, The temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed and that Judaism would be coming to an end. Therefore, uh, the Christian church is kind of like the spiritual fulfillment of of what we were reading about. Uh, When I say fulfillment, I mean um, picks up where Judaism left off. 
uh, almost kind of replacement uh, uh, ideology fashion, replacement theology and things like that. Uh, let's keep reading about um, preterism. Preterism holds that the contents of Revelation constitute a prophecy of events that were fulfilled in the first century. Preterists believe the dating of the book of Revelation is of vital importance and, listen up, that it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That is a very important factor that you need to um, be aware of, especially in, in full preterism. Um, AD 70 um, with the destruction of the temple and the uh, the the, uh, the eventual downfall of Jerusalem uh, during the Prokochpa revolts later on in the 130s of that same era, A.D., it's important to understand that preterism interprets um, end-time prophecy as having to have been delivered to the people of Israel before the destruction of the temple. So the date of the book of Revelation ends up being very, very early, like as early as in the 60s, like almost contemporary with Paul's writings, um, you know, closer to that time period, Paul wrote in the in the fifties, the mid fifties, uh, before he was imprisoned in Rome in the in the sixties. Um, so, in that sense, the Book of Revelation, uh, John being uh, exiled to the Isle of Patmos, was very early, and the Book of Revelation was penned very early and began to circulate among the the Christian churches, particularly the seven churches in Rome in uh, Revelation, and therefore it had to be received by them and kind of um, understood by them so that they could be prepared in advance for the um, destruction of Jerusalem that was going to happen within a decade. That's kind of where preterism needs to have uh, its uh, foothold. Uh, Wikipedia continues, preterism was first expounded by the Jesuit Louis de Alcazar during the Counter-Reformation. The uh, preterist view served to bolster the Catholic Church's position against attacks by Protestants who were under the um, uh, historicist view, I'm sorry, not the historicist view, but the uh, the futurist view, were identifying the Pope with the Antichrist. Um, I'm sorry, the historicist view were doing that. Is it the sources view? Now I'm drawing a blank. We were just looking at that. Uh, while this interpretation is popular among U.S. evangelists, generally rejected, and that would have been the... Uh, um, the futurists, yeah. So the futurists were were saying, well, it's the Pope uh, and Catholicism. They're the ones that are the big baddies. So, um, you know, the Catholic Church was looking to some support from the preterist view as well, saying, no, it's not us. It's it's ancient Rome and ancient Judaism and, and uh, all that. You know, the Catholic Church wasn't even around in 70 AD. So why would why would it be us that's the ones that are the, the, the you know, the, the beast in Revelation and things like that? How can you say that we're the ones uh, that we're doing all those bad things or we're going to be doing all those bad things, right? Um, also, keep in mind that the preterism view, when it comes to full preterism, sees basically the books of Daniel and, uh, you know, chapters in Matthew and uh, the book of Revelation as basically already completed. It's past history. Does that make sense? So they're not reading it with a view towards that there's going to be something bad coming around the corner in that regard. Um Let's look at the um, ways in which partial and full preterism differ from one another real quick as we're drawing to a close so I can read the idealist version. And then I'll probably save next week for the uh, uh, building a case for the perspective that I hold to. So we got partial and full preterism differing in these particular um, important ways. Uh, Wikipedia continues. Partial preterism, which is often referred to as 
Orthodox Preterism or Classical Preterism, it may hold that most eschatological prophecies, such as the destruction of Jerusalem, the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, and the advent of the Day of the Lord as a quote-unquote judgment coming of Christ, were fulfilled either in AD 70 or during the persecution of Christians under the emperor Nero. So that's very, very important distinction that they make. In essence, when they're reading through the book of Revelation, like we're going to be doing it uh, for this particular uh, study of mine, um, they're saying, well, look, it's already fulfilled. And they're using scripture to drive their understanding of it being already fulfilled. And, the, and then so they're going to look through uh, history for the confirmation of their understanding of this particular um, passage of the Bible. Uh, Revelation and things like that in Daniel. By comparison, full preterism differs from partial preterism in that full preterists believe that the uh, destruction of Jerusalem fulfilled all eschatological or end-time events, including the resurrection of the dead and Jesus' second coming or parousia and the final judgment. And so, becomes kind of incredible to me how they can hold that view that um, the resurrection of the dead has already taken place, the second coming of Jesus has already taken place, um, but that's the view they hold to. And so, um, you know, what can I say? It is what it is, and then we just kind of have to uh, deal with it. Um, let's uh, finalize our study tonight and just deal with the idealists, and then I'll leave off next week where we're talking about being like building a case for a literal hermeneutic. I was going to talk about some, um, uh, uh, give you kind of a, a, a preview of um, some uh, rapt review tonight, but it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to. I don't want to go too far over. Lastly, in our list of four perspectives, there might be more, but these are four of the biggies, the general ones where most people's interpretation of end time uh, prophecies are going to uh, uh, find their um, um, uh, find their um, their their interpretation or find their location. Um, we've got what's known as the idealist interpretation or idealism and de de defined as in the context of Christian eschatology, idealism, also called the spiritual approach, the allegorical approach, which we already looked at, the non-literal approach, and uh, many other names. This particular approach when it comes to end-time prophecy involved an interpretation of the book of Revelation that sees all or most of the imagery of the book as basically symbolic so um it's it's just see symbols and not much more uh it goes a uh, definition goes on to say idealism is common among reformed theologians and it is associated with amillennialism when we're talking about amillennialism we're talking about a view of the thousand year reign of christ on earth that's not literal it's symbolic because Jesus talked about his kingdom not being of this world when he was being questioned by those authorities, and because we know that the kingdom of God really exists, truly exists within our hearts, well then the amillennialist doesn't have to look for a literal thousand-year millennial reign of Christ physically on planet Earth. Instead, since Jesus dwells in our hearts, the amillennialist and the, um, the idealist simply says, well, this is simply an idea. What do we do with that figure of a thousand years? Well, that's just kind of conceptual, like many numbers in the Bible. It doesn't have to be taken literally. Um, it's just kind of a, a, a figurative 
allegorical or spiritual or symbolic number to speak of kind of a complete unit or something like that. That's that's kind of the way they approach uh, that text. This is, by the way, in contrast to those told to hold to a literal thousand years where Christ is physically reigning from Earth uh, in bodily form. Uh, the uh, this particular um, version or method of interpretation of inter end time events continues. There exists in this method degrees of idealism. The most radical form sees as it sees it as entirely symbolic, while a more moderate view may allow for some historical fulfillment of events. So, if you ever have a, a dialogue with someone who's an idealist or or is into idealism you'll find that they're not really interested in what the text is saying literally you know for them it's 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 all about the allegorical the spiritual and the symbolic meanings of the details of the text and so again we've looked at pros and cons the dangers of different uh, views and for this one you can kind of all, all, already kind of automatically begin to perceive that one of the inherent dangers of this view is that it's deeply personal right it's um it's not objective, it's subjective. So it means I think the symbol means this, and you might mean think that the symbol means that, and the two of us are gonna disagree because we have different individual perspectives on, on any different um, uh, particular end time text. Let's uh, finish up our uh, these views tonight. Idealism was common in medieval writers and is still taught by some modern theologians. Um, Wikipedia continues. Different authors have suggested that the beast of revelation represents various social injustices such as exploitation of workers wealth the elite commerce materialism and imperialism so again each method has something to add to the discussion of end time events and eschatology and so i'm not trying to throw idealism completely out personally i'm not trying to throw it out even if i personally don't find myself interacting with this perspective that often um but when we are looking at texts like the book of revelation and we find a lot of symbology there and uh the apocalyptic genre forces us to examine the symbols and their meanings well then we would make um we would do well to consider that some of this symbology is indeed uh um say pointing to a bigger ideal or concept that may not always be best understood to be uh, contained within one individual or one particular uh, city or country or re even religious movement or something like that. Um, Wikipedia continues, various Christian anarchists such as Jacques Ellul uh, have identified the state and political power as the beast. And again, we're talking about a one world governmental system that has influence over politics, um, over commerce, over um, buying and selling, of course, and over religion. And so it kind of fits with the idealist perspective to say that maybe this is uh, better viewed as not just a one person, but something a little bigger than one person could um, juggle. Uh, in conclusion, this particular perspective, um, Christian eschatological idealism is distinct from preterism futurism and historicism in that it does not see any of the prophecies except in some cases the second coming and final judgment but it doesn't see any of these um prophecies as being fulfilled in a literal physical earthly sense in the past present or future right did you catch that right idealism just kind of says you know 
the Bible is uh, uh, contains a lot of concepts that were meant to be interacted with the widest group of people. And so um, in order to do that, it has to be able to uh, be interpreted in any given time hit period and any given history. And so if it's only locked into one history, one time period, well, then some people are going to miss out on some of the importance of the text. So let's just look at it from the idealistic perspective. In closing this particular interpretation, uh, it views the interpretation of the eschatological portions, eschatological portions of the Bible in a historical or future historical fashion as an erroneous understanding. It looks, again, at, at, at those other views of interpreting the uh, um, eschatological text as error, uh, again, owing to the fact that if we restrict the, the prophecies to certain history or historical events, well then, what happens to the people who either don't live long enough to uh, experience those events or what happens to the Bible when it comes to events that have already come and gone? Does that mean the Bible is nullified? It's no longer important? In the uh, idealist perspective, all of the Bible becomes relevant for every generation and succeeding generations because it's continually being reinterpreted and reinvented, as it were, by what whatever particular individuals need to see the um, symbolism that's uh, uh, contained in those particular texts. So we'll break off this part, uh, uh, topic two, uh, about hermeneutics. We'll pick this up again next week uh, with this uh, paragraph entitled Building a Case for a Literal Hermeneutic. It's not very long, but there are one, two, three, four, five parts to it, and I can easily hit that next week. And then we'll also um, give you kind of a um, sneak preview on some of the different rapture views. Like, for instance, if I zoom in on this page that's supplied by... Um, uh, who this uh, uh, a particular website Revelation Mark Hitch, Hitchcock uh, brand Credo courses. In other words, they're the ones who put this little slot, this little image together. But if you look at this, um, when we're talking about one of the more controversial topics in the Bible, the Rapture, uh, the end time event known as the Rapture, well then we can begin to see that there's this um, um, perspective known as pre-trib, mid-trib pre-wrath and post-trib. We're not going to deal with that tonight. Uh, I wish I had more time, but if you're interested in these particular topics, be sure to uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel uh, so that you can be notified when I upload new videos um, and or be, uh, be sure to visit my um, uh, website at tatesatora.com and be on the alert uh, for um, uh, commentaries that are forthcoming on this, these particular topics. But we'll keep looking at this next week. That'll conclude for Eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture at Congregation K. Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well youtube.com forward slash c forward slash tetsay torah ministries if you do hit my website uh my youtube channel there be sure to uh, take notice that i update the uh site 
essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. Um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn now to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is an, a 30-minute uh, look at um, a topic uh, that's related to my Shema study that I conducted over the last three years. It's an apologetic course where we're looking at studies and topics, uh, particularly verses that are supplied and wrestled back and forth between uh, Trinitarians and Biblical Unitarians. I'm only focusing on the Biblical Unitarian uh, denominational group. And as I mentioned in the past, uh, Biblical Unitarianism is a denominational group that differs from generic uni uh, Unitarian Universalists in that they both have a non-Trinitarian perspective when it comes to God, right? They both believe that there's that God is a that is God is numerically one, that he's not triune in his persons, he's singular in his persons. There's one God, there's one person. And yet the biblical Unitarian differs from Unitarian Universalists and that the biblical Unitarian is a little bit more conservative in their views and they're trying to root their perspectives back in the Bible. Thus, it's right in their name, biblical Unitarianism. They're seeking to be more biblically based in their understanding of God versus the um, Uni Unitarian Universalist um, denomination a little bit more liberal. They're they're not uh, shy of bringing in different comparative religious perspectives, such as Buddhism, Judaism, uh, non, non uh, rabbinic Judaism. Um, you know, other uh, religious, uh, say, uh, New Age uh, teachings and theology, and bringing them all to the table for discussion and believing that there's some benefit that they can gain by um, having kind of this. Um, comparative religious discussion and allowing all of those views to speak to what the Bible has to say or something to that effect. Um, so again, a little bit more liberal, um, less rooted in what the Bible says and more kind of allowing for just personal opinion and personal perspective. Um, Anthony Buzzard, who's one of the prominent spokesmen for uh, Unitarianism is, I believe, a member of the Unitarian Universalist side of the house, not necessarily a biblical Unitarian like, say, um, John Shaneheit, I believe I'm saying his name right, Shaneheit or Shaneit, the gentleman that we're interacting with on Biblical Unitarianism. So, 
Now that you guys understand where we're coming from, of course, Trinitarianism, I'm coming from the Orthodox perspective, meaning the view that was uh, postulated and put forth and understood by the earliest of the Christian fathers and the Christian writers on this particular topic. Of course, this goes from first century into second, third, and fourth, and ongoing. That's what I mean by Orthodox Trinitarian. So we looked at Genesis 1-1 last week, and now let's turn to Genesis 1-26, which reads out of the KJV. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. All right, what I want to do first is simply read their answer, and then I'll go back and interact with their particular answer. All right, here's what they have to say. Genesis 1-26 is used by many Trinitarians to say that God is a trinity because of the words, quote, let us, end quote. Although this would be an acceptable way to understand God's saying, if the plurality of God or the Trinity was defined anywhere else in scriptures, God is never called three or three in one, but is always defined as one. And we've got a reference to John 5, 44, 17, 3, and Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Thus, they say, we should seek to see if there is another explanation for God saying, let us, rather than concluding the opposite of what the scriptures explicitly teach. This is their answer again. This is my um, uh, presentation of their answer. Again, I, you know, as a biblical Trinitarian, I disagree with their assessment of the text, but we need, we need to read their, ver- their understanding so I can make sure I'm understanding where they're coming from, and then I'll provide my own answer to their answer. They go on to say that we should use the clear majority of scriptures to interpret the minority of confusing passages. They continue, although there are at least six different interpretations for what God means here, the let us is most likely referring to God speaking to his divine counsel, which is his counsel of spirit beings that God works with in ruling and running his creation. God's divine counsel is an important but not commonly understood part of scripture, so it deserves some explanation. So they're going to explain it for us. They go on to say, some of the biblical evidence for God having an inner counsel with, with, with whom he works is very clear. Psalm 89 verse 7 mentions God's divine counsel, and the word counsel is translated from the Hebrew word sod, which they say refers to a counsel, secret counsel, intimate counsel, circle, familiar friends, assembly, end quote. And also sometimes to the, result, the results of the deliberation of a divine counsel. They go on to say, other verses also mention divine counsel, the sowed of God, such as Jeremiah 23, 18 and 22 and Job 15, 8. Um, And then they've got a quote, impressive evidence from the Old Testament and parallels from Mesopotamian and Canaanite mythology point to the idea of a heavenly court where plans are made and decisions rendered, end quote. I'm not sure exactly where that quote is from. It's probably Anthony Buzzard or one of their other um, big uh, uh, favorite uh, authors that they seek support from. They go on to say, the divine counsel of God shows up with varying degrees of clarity in a number of verses in the Old Testament. While God supplies the power for what he does, he works in concert with his creation. They continue, when it comes to Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, many Trinitarians believe that God, and they've got God in quotes, work together with the other persons, and they've got persons in quotes, God worked together with the other persons in the Trinity when he created things, and they point to Genesis 1.26 as a proof text for their argument. Right? I fall into that camp. Yeah, I'm a Trinitarian. However, they say, many scholars acknowledge that this interpretation is erroneous. Uh, now they're going to quote one of their scholars. 
or not really one of their scholars, but a scholar that they believe finds agreement with their perspective. Recently, Michael Heiser, a Trinitarian theologian, right? That's interesting. A Trinitarian theologian has the following quote. Technical research in Hebrew grammar and exegesis has shown that the Trinity is not a coherent explanation. Seeing the Trinity in 126 is reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament, something that isn't the sound interpretive method. All right, Michael Heiser, as from the Unseen Realm, page 39. Biblical Unitarianism continues, although some theologians think that the uh, this use of us in Genesis 1.26 could be the plural majesty, also called the plural of emphasis, where God uses the plural us to magnify himself. That is not the case here. They continue. Hebrew scholars, um, Hebrew scholars point out that there's no other example of a speaker using the plural while addressing himself as the one being spoken to. More to the point, however, is the work of recent Hebrew scholars showing that the plural of majesty applies to nouns but not verbs. And here's a quote again from Mr. Heiser. The plural of majesty does exist of nouns, but Genesis 1.26 is not about nouns. The issue is the verbal forms. And, end quote, and that's Michael Heiser from the Unseen Realm again, page 39. And I'm going to read the original Hebrew as well as the original Greek from the Septuagint here in a moment. And we're going to focus on the verbs and see what um, see if Michael Heiser has some something uh, a point to be made. I, I'll just tell you in advance, he actually does have a point that's being made there. In Genesis 1.26, the verb make in the phrase let us make is plural. We're going to confirm this here in a moment. You always want to go back and verify. Uh, the verb form make in the, in the phrase let us make is plural, and so the us is not a plural of majesty. It is God speaking to others about making man, mankind, right? In the normal sense of the word, it must be a plural because the verb is in the plural, so he must be speaking to a group of people. The most common objection to the us in Genesis 126 referring to angels is that scripture attests that God made mankind. But God could easily have headed up a council with whom he conferred and afterward did the work they decided upon, right? That's kind of what the rabbinical perspective is that we're going to um, be made aware of it here in a moment. Another objection to this is that God goes on to say after our image, right, let us make man in our image. So one might question how angels are in the image of God. And they give you their answer. Since Adam in his pre-fallen state was without sin and in the image of God, it is perfectly reasonable to assume angels in God's divine counsel were also created in the image of God and without sin. Therefore, in their conclusion, it presents no problem to say that humans were created after the image of God, and in brackets they say, and subsequently angels, end quote, in brackets, end of their answer. Okay, there's the biblical Unitarian answer to Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man after our image. Let's go back and read um, the passage itself and begin to glean some perhaps better understanding of the passage that I believe can be um, rooted back in Trinitarian theology. But before we do that, let me just make you aware of some of my own resources that are available. If you go to my YouTube channel at um, in, in, in YouTube land, I've got a video set of um, five videos, and I think what I'll do is I'll upload all five of them as one video, one kind of, I think it's a, about a 20 or 30 minute video. I think I'll do that this time in conjunction with this particular uh, answer. So I'll put these two together, or I'll just include it in this particular um, video answer here that's 30 minutes, so it means the whole video is gonna be a, bit, a little bit longer. But until that, until I upload that, 
what you can do is you can go to my Torah Observant Shomer Mitzvot um, playlist and scroll down into the playlist until you see the thumbnails uh, a little farther down. You can see I'm scrolling now. Until you see the thumbnails that look like that. Um, can I zoom in on that for a second? Uh, the ones that say um, revisiting, I'm sorry, uh, revisiting Let Us Make Man in Our Image. Uh, those particular thumbnails. Um, and what you'll end up doing is finding um, the uh, uh, five videos uh, that are related to my answer to this particular um, passage about Genesis 1.26. Um, you know, God said, let us make man in our image. Uh, that's one resource that I could point you to. You could also go to my website at takesatour.com and look in the uh, look at the very top at all the uh, cluster link of um, commentaries and um, find the um, Torah Observant Shomer Mitzvot series and then find the excursus on who is God talking with in Genesis 1.26 and read through my commentary there. That's available on my website. Um, what I want to do tonight, however, is I want to endorse a resource that I find helpful and I've always found helpful. I don't agree with everything they say on every topic and every question, but this time I think they hit the nose, the, 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 the they hit the nail right on the nose. Is that the right saying? Yeah. And, uh, it's gotquestions.org. Uh, they have a question is Jesus, the, the creator. And so in their answer, what they're going to supply for us is the Trinitarian answer to who was God talking with in Genesis 1:26 when he says, let us make man in our image. As you know, from a Trinitarian perspective, I do not believe God was conversing with the angels. I do not believe he was conferring with the heavenly council. And I certainly don't believe he was asking the angels, let us make man. And the reason I don't believe that is because he says, let us make. It's not just the us that's in focus. It is more important, like Dr. Heiser mentioned, it's the make part. Let us make, and God is the sole creator. Let me put a little graphic on the screen that shows you in post-production, that shows you that God is the sole creator when it comes to interpreting creatorship in the Bible. And under the label God, or Yahweh, if you will, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as given to us in the Bible as attributing a creatorship. But Everything else is on the other side is creation. So God is on one side of a chart, right? Let's call, let's draw a line vertically from top to bottom and separate a chart from left to right. And on the left side, let's put creator and we'll put God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And on the right side of the chart, we'll put creation. And that's basically everything else. And that's the way we interact with verses like let us make man in our image. It's because the Bible has already given us the answer. Now, yes, I realize it was a mystery at the time when Moshe wrote it. But that doesn't excuse us from not understanding that God did, in fact, in time, give us the answer to the mystery, that which was hidden. The mystery of, of, of God was hidden from mankind. So that doesn't mean that God suddenly became Trinitarian, right? He started out Unitarian as one God, one person, and then he morphed into a Trinitarian God with a triunity, when the revelation was revealed in the New Testament via the incarnation, et cetera, et cetera. That's certainly not the way we interact with the Bible. Let's look at God questions answer. I think I can read through there and answer entirely. It's pretty short. Here's what they have to say about this particular issue about who was God conversing with in 126. I, I say it was Yeshua, or we could say it was the other members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, because of the the um, New Testament passages uh, that we find that um, 
uh, clearly point to Yeshua as having creative authority, as well as those few passages that kind of hint that it was the Holy Spirit, like Job, where he talks about um, the Holy Spirit created me. But primarily, if if you if you say Jesus was the one that God was talking to, you're not going to be wrong. Versus if you say it was the other members of the Trinity, you're still not wrong, but you're going to find more verses that talk about Yeshua being creator and all things created through him, et cetera, et cetera, then you are going to find verses on the Holy Spirit. So here's what God questions has to say. Genesis 1.1 says that God created the heavens and the earth. Remember, we looked at that last week. Then Colossians 1.16 gives the added detail that God created all things through Jesus Christ. The plain teaching of Scripture, therefore, is that Jesus is the creator of the universe. We could stop right there because Scripture is in our favor. As as helpful as God as, as um, Biblical Unitarian wants to be in their answer, right? If I go back and kind of interact with some of the things they said, they um, talk about how that there are other. Um, they mentioned how that there were other um, Mesopotamian and Canaanite mythologies that point to the idea of a heavenly court. Okay, that might be helpful from a historical perspective. Thank you, Biblical Unitarianism, for bringing that up for our discussion. However, do you really want to? Anchor your understanding of the Bible in ancient Mesopotamian and Canaanite mythology? Hello, right? Is that some final authority when it comes to interpreting the Bible? As if that can speak to the authoritative word of God? Certainly not. And I hope Biblical Unitarian's authorship is smarter than that to think that Mesopotamian and Canaanite mythology is going to help support what the Bible says or give further clarification, or even some authoritative look at what the Bible says, right? What do we want to do when we're trying to understand the Bible? We want to turn to the Bible. And here's again where the Biblical Unitarian, over and over again, the Biblical Unitarian perspective, over and over again, seems to show their lack of understanding of using the Bible's authority. They fail in these two areas. Number one, they fail to use all of the Bible, right? Sola uh, tota scriptura, and they failed to use the Bible authoritatively, sola scriptura, the Bible exclusively. So they're going to start pulling in um, Mesopotamian and Canaanite mythology to show how that God was speaking to a heavenly council. Are you going to trust what the ancient Canaanites and Mesopotamians had to say about God's speaking to their um, heavenly councils and courts? Or are you going to turn to the New Testament and find out what the writers of the New Testament, like John and Paul, had to say about the nature of God and when it comes to creatorship? Who are you going to trust, right? So let's go back to um, uh, gotquestions.org. They continue, The mystery of the triune God is difficult to understand, yet is one of the doctrines revealed in in, in Scripture. Notice they're rooting their answer in Scripture. Over and over again, we want to root our answer in Scripture. In the Bible, both God the Father and Jesus are called Shepherd, Judge, and Savior. Both are called the Pierced One in the same verse, right? Zechariah 12.10. Christ is the exact representation of God the Father having the same nature, Hebrews 1.3. There's some sense in which everything the Father does, the Son and the Spirit also do, and vice versa. They are always in perfect agreement at every moment, and all three equal only one God, Deuteronomy 6.4. Knowing that Christ is God and has all the attributes of God aids our understanding of Jesus as the Creator. Make sense? Yeah, it must make sense because we're using the Bible. And 
contrary to what many biblical Unitarians are fond of doing, which is cherry-picking using the entire Old Testament and pitting it against the New Testament. I know they don't say they're doing that. I know they don't. But what they do is they, in, they, they, they inadvertently kind of default to, well, the Old Testament doesn't say that there's Trinity, so that means there must not be Trinity. Well, the Old Testament doesn't seem to imply a persons in God, multiple persons, so therefore there must not be persons. As if the New Testament has nothing to speak to on the matter? Come on, please, let's look at the Bible in its entirety. We have it now. Yes, I realize it was a mystery in the time in the Old Testament. Yes, I realize it was Revelation being unfolded at the time that it was being given in the time period of the Tanakh. But, but, God knew from advance that the New Testament would become part of the Old Testament. It would be one. It would become one authoritative Bible or one authoritative um, source of of um, scripture and understanding. And it's not as if God changed from being a unity into a trinity from the time period of the Old Testament into the New Testament. And that's almost the kind of insinuation that biblical Unitarianism makes when they say, well, we need to let the Old Testament speak to our understanding of God. And that always, what did they say? Um, I think they even said default to the New Testament. Let me let me pull that quote from Heiser again. Um, let's see. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Where is it? Um, this would be a simple way of understanding God. God's never called. Oops. Sorry about that. Never called. Thus, should seek that there's another relation rather than concluding the opposite from scriptures. Uh, give me a second. I'm trying to find Heiser's quote um, where he talks about defaulting to, back to the New Testament. Um, ah, here we go. Heiser says, um, or them quoting Heiser. Uh, yeah, this is Heiser. Technical research in Hebrew grammar and exegesis has shown that the Trinity is not a coherent explanation. Dot, dot, dot. Seeing the Trinity in Genesis 1.26, ready for this? Seeing the Trinity in Genesis 1.26 is reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament, something that isn't a sound interpretive method. Really, Dr. Heiser? Using the Old Testament to interpret the Old Testament is not a sound interpretive method? When was that ever accurate? Right? When you're reading the Old Testament and you find something that you don't quite understand, turn to the New Testament and seek for further elucidation or elaboration or um, revelation. And the reverse works. When you're reading through the New Testament and you find something that you don't fully understand, you should be turning to the Old Testament for further revelation and understanding. So absolutely, I'm not saying we should read into it, but we absolutely should be utilizing the New Testament to um, point us back to the Old Testament and using the Old Testament to point us forward to the New. It's that old adage again, the old is in the new contained, the old, the new is in the old explained. New is in the old explained. I think I got that right. I'll flash a little graphic on the screen that's accurate, but I think you guys have heard that before. So contrary to what Dr. Heiser is, I'm going to have to disagree with what he's trying to say there, unless I'm misunderstanding his quote. But from my understanding, when we're talking about mysteries that God concealed in the Old Testament, right, like, like the mystery of God, but revealed in the New Testament, it is to our advantage and benefit that we use the Old Testament and the New Testament together to help support one another, because in the end, it's one unified word of God. It's not old versus new, new versus old, right? That's a false dichotomy. That little page in your Bible that separates the old from the new, you need to rip that thing out. It's one unified word of God, and God was revealing himself progressively through history and through his word so that God expects us to take the most contemporary revelation and use that to illuminate 
earlier revelation. We do that with parts of the Old Testament. And I'm certainly certain, I'm certainly um, positive that biblical Unitarianism agrees that Jesus is the Messiah. But if I were to corner them on the topic and ask, how can you prove that Jesus is the Messiah using the Bible? I hope they start using the New Testament passages where Messiah is explicitly revealed as Messiah to not just Israel, but to the whole world. If they're going to try and to insinuate or imply that we cannot quote old New Testament passages in support of understanding who Jesus is because Jesus' name doesn't show up in the Old Testament, right? If they're going to imply that reading the New Testament in support of who Jesus is, is reading back into the Old Testament, something that isn't sound interpretive method. I hope they're not using that um, uh, understanding of showing who Jesus truly is. Yes, it's a little more difficult and challenging to find the Messiah in the Old Testament if you've never done this without using the New Testament. But guess what? It can be done. You can see Yeshua in the Old Testament. Yeshua himself did it. He exegeted himself from the Old Testament for those first century Jewish people who didn't have a New Testament writing at the time. Right? We know that from reading through the Gospels. And if he can do it, then we can do it too. So, yes, we can use the Old Testament exclusively to find the Messiah. But the point I'm trying to make is that we don't have to go through that grueling exercise if, if, it's, not, if it's not necessary. We can use the New Testament to support the Old Testament texts. I mean, you can work them uh, in concert with one another. So they don't work against one another. They work together. So we definitely want to be using the New Testament and the Old Testament with one another. But um, got questions. Um, uh, continues in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God right our familiar John 1 1 verse there are three important things in this passage about Jesus and the father number one Jesus was in the beginning right remember Genesis 1 1 in the beginning number two he was present at creation Jesus had existed eternally with God remember my chart again creator creation or creator and everything else and uh, so, too, Jesus is distinct from the Father. He was with God in the beginning. And then number three, Jesus is the same as God in nature. He was, as to very nature, God. If we were to take the kind of the, the, um, uh, the real import of that Greek word in the phrase, uh, in the beginning, God, I'm sorry, uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. The word was God, right? Um, the, the, the Greek supports a, 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 a definition that would supply that as to his nature, all that the word, all that God was, the word was as well, right? To us, to his very nature, the word was defined as full deity, full, fully God as well. Uh, not in the sense of um, identity, but in the sense of qualitatively. Uh, God questions uh, continues. Hebrews 1, 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. Christ is the agent of God's creation. The world was created through him. The Father and the Son had two distinct functions in creation, yet worked together to bring about the cosmos. So we're talking about a little bit of agency going on. I understand that, and I will even allow for that. Jesus was the agent that God used to bring the creation into existence. But we still have to realize that the verses that we're, going, that we're looking at define Jesus on the side of creatorship. Even if he's agent, it doesn't put him on the side of created. He's not part of the created thing because it says all things were created through him, through him, through whom he also made the universe. Even if we say, well, he wasn't God, he's just an agent. Well, I'm here to tell you that the agent 
is God in this particular example, right? The angel of the Lord is the Lord. He is an agent, but he's more than an agent. He speaks as God because he is God. He speaks for God because, um, and he speaks as God because his identity, his nature is very deity. It's the same as God in that sense. But when you say, well, it's a separate agent, those of you who are fond of saying, well, the angel of the Lord is a separate agent from God. Aha, you're simply agreeing with we Trinitarians when we talk about more than one person. So thank you for recognizing that the angel of the Lord, the agent of God, if Jesus is just an agent or if he is an agent of God when it came to creating, thank you for recognizing that there are more than one person when it comes to the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, one God, two different persons. Yeah, I can agree with that. All right, so they talk about um, uh, the, uh, the Father and the Son are, had two distinct functions when bringing about together the cosmos. Uh, all things were made through Jesus, and without um, Jesus was not anything made that was made, John 1, 3. Right? That's the way it works. Without the Word, not anything was made that was made. That's how we know that the Word on our little chart with Creator and, and everything else, that the Word belongs on the Creator side. Why? Because not anything was made that was made. It doesn't say that God created Jesus and then Jesus created everything. Show me that verse. Someone please show me the verse where it says God created Jesus and then Jesus created everything else. I know what you're going to do. You're going to sneak in that verse where it says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, right? In um, Colossians or you're going to, I think it's Colossians, or you're going to sneak in that verse uh, out of Revelation, the book of Revelation where it talks about he's the of the 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 first of God's creation or something like that. But you need to go back and do your homework and look up the Greek words and find out how the interpretation of those passages doesn't lend the support for an understanding that God is creating Jesus. Instead, when it mentions the word creation and the word um, firstborn or something like that in the same verse in relationship to Yeshua, it's talking about the preeminent one who's over all creation, not the first thing that God created. So do your homework first and get back with me. <coughs> got questions, uh, got questions.org continues. The Apostle Paul reiterates, reiterates, quote, there's but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there's but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. By the way, as a side note, we could do an entire word study on the word Lord in the New Testament, the Greek word kudios, how it's related to the Greek, I'm sorry, how it's how it's rooted in the Hebrew word uh, YHVH, Yahweh, the tetragrammaton name for God, and show how that by the first century, there's entirely the understanding that the Greek word kudios, as applied to Lord, carried with it, um, um, uh, incarnational and uh, uh, Trinitarian uh, undertones. The idea is that um, Jesus was Lord in the sense that he is uh, the incarnation of the very uh, uh, one God that we recognize carries the name YHVH. In the Hebrew, it's yod heh vav YHVH, that we pronounce as Yahweh sometimes. Some people say Jehovah. But when we read the Bible in Greek, such as the Septuagint, like I'm going to quote from here in a moment, it ends up being kudios. And yet we call Jesus kudios, right? How does that factor in when we're talking about Jesus being one with the Father? 
And in conclusion, GodQuestions.org says the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was also an agent in creation, Genesis 1-2, right? Remember, in Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Genesis 1-2 goes on to say, and the earth was unformed and void and darkness was on, was on the sur uh, surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God. Notice the kind of agency language, how the Spirit is being mentioned separate from God, the Elohim in verse 1. We've got this Ruach Elohim in verse 2, and yet it is God, and yet it's agency fashion, as in God dispatching uh, one of the persons of the Godhead to hover over the surface of the water while God remains wherever he is locally um at right wherever he's located as if we could um allow spirit to be spatial in that fashion but um genesis 1 2 since the hebrew word for spirit is often translated as wind or breath we can see the activity of all three persons of the trinity in one verse right by the word of the lord the heavens were made their starry host by the breath of his mouth psalm 33 6 brings again all three in one verse by the word of the lord there's yeshua the heavens were made their starry host by the breath of his mouth there's the spirit and i might add um even in genesis 1 1 and 2 in the beginning god there's father created the heavens and the earth and the earth was unformed and void and darkness was on the surface of the deep and the spirit there's third person of god hovered over the surface of waters but then genesis 1 3 says and god said and there's our word so again genesis 1 2 and 3 we have the trinity as well so uh, their conclusion, after a thorough study of Scripture, we can conclude that God the Father is the Creator, Psalm 102.25, and He created through Jesus, God the Son, Hebrews 1.2. So that's an answer I want to endorse, and that's why I read the entire answer for us right here in our um, study. Let's uh, continue looking just real quick at uh, some more of the technicalities of this verse, uh, Genesis 1.26. I've got pulled up for us on um, English on the left side and Hebrew on the right side. Let me scroll down to verse uh, uh, 20. Oh, I guess I was already there. Sorry about that. Didn't need to scroll up or down. Um, let me zoom in on verse 26 in English. This is um, in NASB. I'm going to try and transition from using the ESV all the time. Like I always done in this new year, 2023, I'm going to start using NASB. Perhaps NASB or NES 95 uh, time to time, but I'm going to try start using that more often uh, and kind of get a feel for that. So this is NASB, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let us let, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Of course, the phrase that we're mostly interested in is the first clause, then God said, let us make man in our image, right? Of course, I'm sorry. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and, uh, and we'll stop there. Let, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. All right. So if we go over to the Hebrew on the opposing side of this uh, uh, resource, um, That's the phrase in question. Now let's bring up um, the um, uh, interlinear so we can see each word uh, for its English counterpart. You can see this for yourself. Vayomer, the very first word, reading from right to left in Hebrew. Vayomer, and said, Elohim God, na'ase, let us make, there's our verb, man, Adam, b'tsalmenu, preposition and noun, in our image, kidmutenu, preposition and noun, according to our likeness. 
So when we break this down and look at the um, the verb here, which is right there, naase, we can see according to this tool, the what we might call the morphology. And so if you can't see this on the screen, I'll blow it up in post-production. But if I hover over it, put my mouse on there, it'll show me that it's a verb in the call stem, which is just a Hebrew technical term for the original word, the, the most simple form of the Hebrew verb in the call stem. It's in the imperfect um, cohortative if contextual first person common you ready for this plural yeah let us make so even though the um the um and god said is a conjunctive conjunction uh with the verbal call consecutive um uh, per, uh perfect uh, uh consecutive um i'm drawing a blank here give me a second um consecutive imperfect third person masculine singular so the pronoun is in the singular and he said if you want to say it that third person masculine singular uh, and he said god let us make god is a noun right there it's also a masculine plural but so i, I know that the nouns and pronouns in the sentence are in the plural but the verb is in the, I'm sorry, or in, the, or in the singular, but the verb is in the plural, let us make. And so key to us understanding this text, at least from the Hebrew perspective, is that God says, let us make man in our image. Again, if we look at this particular noun, um, which is a preposition bet plus the noun, if we hover over the, over the morphology, we again see that it's a noun, masculine, singular construct, first person, common, plural, first person, common, plural plural let us make man in our so the us and the are is entirely accurate and it's necessary likewise down here at the bottom of my screen lower right corner according to our likeness kid mutenu same thing preposition k followed by the noun in the feminine singular construct first person uh, cohortative plural according to our likeness the key that's driving our understanding of this verse is that God said, let us make, which oddly enough, the biblical Unitarians caught. They said, what's primary in this verse is the verbs, right? It's the verb that's driving the understanding. Let us make, let us make. Well, guess what? Man was not created by the heavenly council, nor was man created by the angels. Is that a shocker to anyone out there? I hope it's not. Because there's nowhere in the Bible that attributes creatorship to either the heavenly council, such as the four beasts or the, um, you know, the four living creatures that are around the throne or the 24 elders or any of the angels or archangels or, or any of the um, seraphim or cherubim or any of those <clears throat> heavenly council that God often confers with or chats with from time to time. None of them are given creative authority or creative powers in any verses of the Bible. And yet Genesis 1.26 says, let us make. This means the plain sense of the text is referring to someone or some being that has creative power. And last time I checked, only God, which is made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, according to the total counsel of the Bible, has that authority. Let's find... Um, some um, uh, uh, authority or conclusion or confirmation from the next verse in the passage. Uh, Genesis 1.27. Why do I have 27.1 pulled up? That's not right. Genesis 1. Give me a second. 
I guess I jumped down to the wrong passage. Bear with me. Um, I don't want chapter. Sorry about that. That's what I want. Genesis 1. 27. There we go. So um, let me jump back over to the English and the uh, Hebrew for us first. And Genesis 1.27, just in case someone guesses, well, God conferred with his heavenly counsel in making the um, man, or it was the angels that God was using to help co-create man or something like that. Biblical Unitarian wants us to kind of be uh, side distracted by the heavenly counsel. They want us to they want to kind of deflect from what the Bible's saying in its plain natural sense by introducing this idea of heavenly counsel and angels and all of this stuff. Notice in their answer they kind of put a lot of um of um weight in this idea of heavenly counsels, even leaning on ancient Canaanite Mesopotamian uh sources that show that they also have their own uh, heavenly counsel, therefore, well, why can't God have a heavenly counsel that he confers with? Okay, that's all good and well, but what does the text say in the very next verse? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Doesn't mention anything about the heavenly counsel that God supposedly conferred with in the creation aspect. Doesn't mention the angels. Who created man in the very next verse? God created man. Let's look at the Hebrew just to make sure we're not misunderstanding. The Hebrew says, Elohim et ha adam, Elohim bara oto, bara otam. And the um let's turn to uh the interlinear so we can see exactly which words belong to what. Vaivra, so created, there's our verb, third person masculine, singular. Because we're talking about the being of God. But this is right after Moshe wrote that, let us create man with a plural us. So now we've got Vaivra in the singular. What does this tell us about God? That God is complex in his nature. All throughout the Bible, he's spoken of as one God. And we find pronouns in the singular, he. Why is that? Because there's only one God, and He is the only God there is. So it's quite natural for the Hebrew to be in the singular there. But now when we look at verbs, God gives us, God allows, uh, God tips His hand towards us just a bit that He's uniplural, that He's complex in His nature. He allows Moshe to write, let us make man, and the verb make is in the plural in one verse, and in the very next verse, it says vaivra in the singular. See how that's mysterious? If it simply said, uh, if the vaivra was in the plural again, and if all the verbs for God and throughout the Tanakh were all in the plural, then we would probably be under the impression that there's more than one God, because there's always a plural verb attached to a singular pronoun or something to that effect, a singular referent. Indeed, the very next noun is the noun in the masculine plural, the Elohim, but that's again either a, a noun, a plural of majesty or a plural of, of um, we talked about this in the very first uh, episode previous, that Elohim doesn't necessarily mean more than one God. In fact, it cannot mean more than one God. It must be more, It must be one God because the verb here is confirming. The one singular God named Elohim created, Vaivra Elohim, Vaivra singular Elohim 
plural, et ha'adam b'tzalmo, in his own image, third person masculine, singular, not third person masculine, plural. And yet, if Jesus is the creator, then how come it doesn't say third person masculine, plural? Because the mystery of God is that he's one God and three persons. Jesus, the eternal word of God, is creator as God. But the person is the Son. So we have the one God, one what, and yet three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is the mystery. So, um, and then down at the bottom, in the image again, um, singular, in the image of Elohim, the plural, in the image of God, third person masculine, singular, oto, God created him, singular, speaking of humanity or human or Adam, in this case, the, the noun earlier, the referent is back to Ha'adam, uh, the man, which is a singular noun. And then, male and female, he created third person masculine, singular, them, third person masculine, plural. Now, do we have support from the Septuagint? And I'll draw my study to a close with this. The Greek version of the Bible? Absolutely. Let's read the English one time, one once more. This is kind of a modified KJV. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We've got the Hebrew reproduced for us one more time. This particular clause, I'll highlight it for you on the screen. That's the clause that we're interested in right? Let us make man after our image, after our likeness. We're not really interested so much in the dominion over the fish and fowl and sea and the cattle and creeping things. We're not looking at that tonight. Maybe a different study. But uh, God the creates man and the creation, the making part is in the plural, right? Making man after our image and after likeness are also in the plural. Uh, in the Greek, let me highlight it here. Going to be that part right there. Let's see if I can zoom in on that. Yeah, that looks pretty good. The Greek says, Kai apen hotheos poyasomen anthropon kat ekana hemeteron kai kath ha moyosin. Now, the, the verbs, if I were to, this, by the way, is translated below in the English as, and God said, let us make man according to our image and according to our likeness, right? Which is basically the same as the translation from the Hebrew. Kai, I'm translating it woodling for you. Kai and apen to say and let and, and said say and ha which is the theos god poisomen make anthropon person or man cot according to ekana image or likeness himateron our kai and kath um according to homoyosin uh, likeness or resemblance and if I click on um, poyosomen, which is the verb to make, then I find that it is, you ready for it? A verb in the aorist active subjunctive first person plural. It's not in the singular. Yeah, the Greek agrees with the Hebrew that the verb is in the plural. Let us make, not let me make. What the Greek is doing is it's saying the verb must be in the plural because the Hebrew is. 
And the verb is the plural, even though theos here is, is God, the ha theos, um, that's a singular God. The verb is in the plural because the Hebrew is in the plural, and we can't change that, and we shouldn't mess with the text. But when it talks about the and the image and the likeness, it's okay to put that back into the singular. This is I, I'm suspecting what the the uh, translators of the Septuagint uh, did for us. We can put that back into the singular because we're still talking about one God. We don't want to say, um, and God said, "Let us make man in our images and in our likenesses." That's what would happen if the Greek was in the plural for the icon, the ikona, if it was in plural, and the homoiosin was in the plural for the uh, likeness and the image. We don't want images and likenesses. The, the key point that we can walk away with, and I'll close with this, is that the poiesomen, the Greek of the make, the verb, is in the plural. And that's what's driving uh, the entire um, understanding of our passage. So God created man in his own image, kai uh, poi. Let me click on a poison here, which is the verb, and see, it's in the singular, yeah, which confirms what I was suspecting. When we go down to verse 27, where it says God made man, the verb is jumps back into drops back into the singular, just like it did in the Hebrew, because it's a singular God that made man in his own image even though earlier when it says he says let us make the us is plural and the uh make is plural because god's speaking with the other members of the trinity or more exactly speaking with yeshua so that kind of makes sense that'll do it for um a trinitarian under a trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism and as since i've um done away with the um uh the uh liturgy and the uh, video for 2023 in this particular live study, let's simply dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for uh, the participation from the students. I'm thankful so much for the text and the, the fact that the Holy Spirit preserved it for us, and that we can continue to draw our um, understanding and inspiration from the text via the help of the Holy Spirit who authored the text. Help us, Lord, to continue to press in and to be, to, um, be faithful to make ourselves students of the Word so that we can be utilized by you in these last and evil days, helping uh, turn sinners to repentance and to build up the body of Messiah, helping to have a better understanding of Scripture. We don't have all the answers, and that's why we utilize the Bible, because you have already promised that you have revealed yourself to us in the pages of your word. And that's where we're going to find our understanding of you. That's how we're going to be better equipped uh, in these last and evil days. Help us to be strong. Uh, help us to be bold in our witness. Help us to continue to look to you as the author and finisher of our faith. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. Bashem Yeshua. Amen.